Hey church, Pastor John here with some announcements. First off, today is the finale of our sermon series, Her. These past few weeks have been amazing looking at the power, influence, and impact of women in scripture and hearing stories from different people within our congregation. Today we have a special guest speaker that we can't wait. Her name is Grace Spencer and she is here from River Community Church in San Jose. She's the pastor of small groups and evangelism. She's an amazing woman of God, an amazing communicator, and you will be certainly blessed. Last Sunday, we had our prodigal family barbecue and it was so much fun. We were at Woodward Park and we laughed and we ate good food and we hung out and we played. We had an incredible time. Thanks for all those who volunteered and thanks all those who came out. We've got two things happening next Sunday. First, it's our summer kickoff. We're gonna be having Kona ice right after service. We're gonna have a car wash. We're gonna have some bounce houses and the car wash is to benefit prodigal youth going to summer camp this summer. And then later on that afternoon to kind of wrap up our Her Sermon series, um, the women in our church are gonna be get together to kind of build community and conversation to continue the conversation of the topics that we discussed throughout the month. Refreshments will be provided and all of the details are on our Prodigal app or website. Next week, we start a brand new summer series called Summer Mixtape. You know when you were a kid, if you were an 80s child, you would make a mixtape and it would have like a country song, a pop song, a, sometimes a Christmas song. You'd, it'd just be a, a random plethora of music. That's what we're gonna be doing all summer long. Each sermon will have a completely different vibe as the next as we explore the scriptures in a variety of ways this summer. Our PC Kids Camp is coming up July 10th through the 13th. It's gonna be right here at Bullard from 9 a.m. to 12, and it is four days of high impact, high energy, fun, games, learning, growing. It's gonna be incredible. It'll be the highlight of your kids' summer. Check out this short highlight video from last year for more information. So sign up online today for our kids' camp. It's gonna be incredible. Prices go up as we get closer. You can register today at prodigalchurchfresno.com. If you'd like to give to Prodigal Church, there are a few ways you can do so. You can use the giving boxes on your way out, use the giving kiosks in the foyer, or give online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Thank you so much for your consistent generosity to Prodigal Church. Thank you so much for joining us for the finale of our Her Sermon Series. Have a great Sunday, church. Christian in junior high school through Fresno Youth for Christ. It was there that I saw men and women, young men and women, serve with passion and fun. I had many good role models. While I was in college, I joined Youth for Christ staff. I served many years in the junior high program and I became one of the first women directors. It was there that I first saw the importance of having men and women leaders good leaders. I got married, became a teacher, and had children. After my second child, I took a leave of absence from teaching. I began serving in many children's ministry areas in my church. A children's pastor position came up in the church, and people began asking me if I ever considered the position. No was my answer. I had not. More people continued to ask me, and I then realized that this was a calling from God, and I felt called to that position. My husband and I decided that we would uh, take the position as an interim for one year. During the process, I had to share my testimony and qualifications for the position. 
the group I presented to were all men. When I left the meeting and stepped out of the room, there was a man standing nearby and I said, whew, I'm glad that's over. And he said to me, this is a conservative church and they are not going to take to a woman's pastor. I was blindsided. When I saw the three women who had, were supporting me to put me into this position, they said they weren't surprised either. And when I went home and told my husband, he was not surprised either. I went ahead and took the position anyway. When I talked to my father-in-law about the position, I told him, there's just one man who disagrees with me being a woman in a pastor position. My father-in-law's remarks to me were, oh, Annette, I am sure that there is more than one man. As I started working now, a little less naive about the situation, I decided I was going to be respectful to those who might not agree with me being a woman pastor. I was tested a lot by individuals during that time, but I continued to focus and believe that God had called me here. Here's an example of the testing. In my first two years, and even a little longer than that, there was a staff member who constantly pressured me to preach. I, that was not in my job description, nor was it anything I felt I wanted to do. I politely or with humor would decline the challenge. Finally, 11 years later, I decided I would preach. And after I did that, many people came to me and said, we would love to hear you again. Even the men who were not in agreement with me being a part of the pastoral staff. Here's my conclusion. I ended up serving for 25 years as a pastor through being kind to those who disagreed with my role. Working hard, being passionate, consistent, and respectful, I was able to demonstrate that a woman can lead. I was able to create new programs and take on new challenges that I never thought I could when I had finished. I believe I was seen as part of the staff more than the woman pastor. I think that both men and women should be leaders in the church. I believe that is a model that is appropriate for today to help us keep our focus on bringing others to Jesus. Prodigal Church. My name is Grace. I am a pastor in San Jose. I am also the co-founder and co-director of the Preacher Academy, an international online preaching academy for women. And I am originally from Fresno. I actually graduated from Bullard High School. And I don't know about you, but I enjoy a really good movie. I feel like that's most of us nowadays. And I just recently saw the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Don't worry, I won't spoil it. But I thought it was really great. And I found this article online that was rating the top 50 best opening movie scenes of all time. And it included the first Guardians of the Galaxy opening scene. I don't know if you remember the way that movie started, but it starts with Chris Pratt's character as a child watching his mother die in a hospital. 
And when she passes, he is grieved and terrified and he runs out of the hospital and then is like swooped up into space. And then in the next scene, he's an adult and he's dancing to come and get your love. And the opening scene of a movie is really pivotal because in some ways it foreshadows or points to the plot and the tension that is unfolding. It tells you who the main characters are, what to pay attention to and anticipate. And in this movie, you can anticipate that the death of Chris Pratt's character's mom is going to have an impact on him throughout the entire storyline. You might even expect that the Guardians of the Galaxy are going to form a kind of family or community for him. And because he's dancing to fun music, you can expect that while it will be action and intensity, that there's also a lightheartedness and comedy that you can anticipate. This morning, I'm going to be diving into the very beginning of the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel tells the story of Israel becoming a kingdom, a nation. See, God had delivered this group of people, the Hebrews, out of Egypt, and he formed them into a group of people, Israel. But they have yet to had a king. And so the book of Samuel tells the story of them eventually becoming a kingdom and having a king. And it has big stories in it about a kid defeating a giant, stories that you expect to be told and remembered, stories of war and victory and God's faithfulness to his, this group of people. But it also has stories that you might expect in this kind of book, too. Stories about kings doing horrific things in their ruthless quest for power. Stories of violence and death. It's all in this book. And it's very interesting to me because this book about kings and nations and war and victory and violence, it actually starts out with the story of a woman in an obscure village who is in the trenches of infertility. And she's experiencing layers of suffering because of her circumstances. What do you think it means that Israel's story of becoming a nation a kingdom starts out this way. What do you think the writer is trying to communicate by setting the stage with this story? Is this kingdom supposed to be like all the other nations? Is their God supposed to be like all the other gods? Or is there something distinct about this God, Yahweh? Is there something distinct about this group of people? The beginning of Samuel starts this way. It says, There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other, Penina. 
Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Okay, so already a lot has taken place in this story. You'll notice multiple times it says that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. She cannot get pregnant. And what's important to understand is she is not only suffering in the sense that she cannot have kids, but she wants kids. But she's suffering in the sense that there would also be a lack of honor. Contempt was piled on women who could not have children, and this was an honor-shame context. And what I want to bring your attention to is this sacrificial system that they had. Their worship, going to the temple, should actually bring them closer to God and a sense of wholeness, right relationship with God and each other. But instead of helping, this, the way that this is functioning for Hannah, the worship of God is actually reinforcing the pain and inequality that is taking place in these relationships. The sacrificial system right now is not bringing them closer to God, to wholeness. And so her husband approaches her because she is weeping and she will not eat. She is so anguished. And he says, why are you weeping? Why won't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Doesn't it seem like he's kind of missing the point? <laughs> like his response, while he's aware that something is going on, his response majorly misses the mark. I mean, it's a little egocentric. He doesn't say, Hannah, you mean more to me than 10 sons. He says, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Which is probably more a reflection of his own insecurity. So the story goes on. It says, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of my life and no razor will ever be used on his head. So, you know, this might sound a little bit like 
a vending machine kind of prayer. Hannah's like, okay, God, if you give me this, I'll give you this, right? But it's more like Hannah is making a vow with God. It's more like a word that we often use in the Christian tradition, Christian tradition covenant, like a special relationship. Hannah says, if you give me a son, I will set him apart in service to you. So as she kept praying, in verse 12, it says, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Okay. Again, this response falls so short, really misses the mark. If anyone should understand Hannah's pain and suffering, her heartfelt devotion to God, it should be the priest. It should be Eli. But it seems like no one around her understands what she's experiencing. Have you ever felt like that? Like you're navigating something really heavy and people around you, they have good intentions. They want to help, but they just don't seem to get it. Or maybe you feel like the people around you are just unaware and don't seem to care. Now, in the text, it's notable to me that it says she was praying in her heart because in Hebrew, the language that this was originally written in, the heart is more than just like mushy-gushy feelings. The heart was the seat of your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's where your desires flowed from. It dictated the decisions that you would make based on your desires. Your whole life flowed from the heart. So in the Christian tradition, when we say love the Lord your God with all your heart, it's like with everything, your will, your mind, your desires, your decisions. Hannah pours out her heart to God. She weeps bitterly and she makes a vow. In verse 15, she responds to the priest and she says, Not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Hannah, who was just a moment ago weeping bitterly, could not eat, anguished, is now eating and it says her face is no longer downcast, which could be signaling that she is no longer buried under shame. She moves from this space of great, great anguish to what seems like accepting. 
Now, if you know this story, you know that Hannah does have a baby. But at this point, we do not know that yet. At this point, it seems like something has shifted before she has the baby. So it makes us wonder, is, has her has her heart and her attitude changed because she thinks that God is going to come through? You know, we could look at this and say, well, yeah, she's going to get what she wants. So of course, like her face is no longer downcast. Of course she could eat now. God is going to answer her prayer. But that has not been told in the story yet. In verse 19, it says, Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. It's pretty remarkable that this woman who was suffering, layers of suffering, could not have a child, now gives birth to a son. But the story gets even more remarkable. In verse 21, it says, When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. So not only does Hannah have a son, but now she is going to give him up. She is going to stay faithful to the vow that she made with God. Now, I've never had a child. I've been a child, and I have nieces and nephews, and they are awesome, and I love them, and I'm attached to them, and I could not imagine giving them up. So I can't imagine what it would be like for her to give up her son in service to the Lord. Not only is that a great loss to her as his mother, who is wanted, so desperately wanted a child, but also in this culture and context, that was a loss of security. Because if her husband had died before she was able to have another child, that would put her at great risk. But she does give him up. And her son Samuel becomes a prophet and anoints the king of Israel. But the story still really makes me wonder what exactly happened after Hannah poured her heart out to God after she prayed and turned to him with her desires and her suffering. Did she find this kind of acceptance because she knew God was going to answer her prayer? Or do you think she had some kind of encounter with God that allowed her to welcome whatever might happen? Do you think something happened in that encounter with God that allowed her to trust who God is, because he sees her. Maybe she found profound comfort experiencing that even though the men around her, her husband and the priest, did not understand that God was there, attentive to her. 
Did she find a sense of honor in in the fact that God didn't think she was beneath his consideration? God didn't look down on her because she was without a child? Maybe she had a profound experience of who God is. And from that encounter and that experience, she could trust God with what she could not fix and trust that, in fact, he was good. I really love this quote by Adele Alberg. She writes a lot about spiritual formation and disciplines. And she said, in the unfixables of our lives, we are invited to keep company with Jesus and take a risk that God intend, intentions toward, toward us are good. Day after day, this is what Jesus did. It is called trust. He calls us, keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I was reflecting recently on the life of Tim Keller. Tim Keller was a very well-known and loved pastor, church planner, and author in the United States. And he just recently passed away from cancer. And I remember after his diagnosis, I read a letter, I read an article in which he was processing what it has been like to face his imminent death. And he acknowledged that in some way he felt like he had been slipping unconsciously into the idea that God lived for him. Rather than Tim living for God. And that unconsciously he was buying into this idea that life was supposed to go well for him. And he said to embrace God's greatness to say thy will be done was painful at first and then perhaps counterintuitively, profoundly liberating. You know, sometimes when we take our deepest desires, our deepest fears, all of our trust, and we bring them into contact with God, there are times when we experience a kind of peace and joy and freedom and love that is really beyond explanation. The fact that Hannah gives Samuel away, I think really answers this question. Her anguish wasn't resolved because she got what she prayed for and asked for and really wanted. I think she discovered something that she really wanted in God. There was something that happened in that encounter with God that brought her comfort and honor being known and seen, freedom and relief. That is what is available to us in the life of faith. And really, when we look at Hannah's life and her response, in this story, there's a kind of paradox unfolding. Not only in the fact that the people around her, the priest, who who you would expect would recognize her heart and her suffering. But in the larger story of the book of Samuel, of Israel becoming a nation, Hannah's story, a story of a woman weeping, pouring out her heart, trusting God with her deepest desire. It stands in contrast to the men later on in the story who grasp and fight 
and hold too tightly to the power that God entrusted them with. See, God entrusted Hannah with a son and she gave him over to the Lord. It's almost like in the retelling of this story, the author of the book of Samuel is inviting you in to this tension, this drama that leaves you wondering, what kind of God is this? What kind of God takes up an interest with a woman who is suffering, not only sees her and understands her, but does something about it? What kind of God can relieve some of her burden? can restore her honor without even changing her circumstances. What kind of God uses a woman who people, that people in her world would have considered insignificant? God uses this woman for his plans and his purposes. What kind of God? But then it's almost like the author and the way the story is set up also leaves you wondering, who do you want to be in response to this God? Do you want God to live for you? Do you need a big story? Are you expecting and buying in to the idea that life is supposed to go well for you? That that's where the meaning and purpose is. That you know what's best and you should go after it. Or do you want to be like Hannah? Do you want to trust God with your story? Do you want to live for this God? Do you want to trust him with your deepest desires and pour out your heart even when life doesn't go well for you? Who are you in response to this God? What does that really mean for us practically though? Right? Let me leave you with this one invitation. If you find yourself in a place this morning wanting to reconnect with God or connect with God for the first time, if you want to know more about this God, experience God in the way that Hannah did, bringing her comfort and relief in really difficult circumstances and a lot of pain. I invite you just to have one honest, vulnerable conversation to pour out your heart to God. That could look like going into a quiet space, pretending like God's there and sharing what's really on your heart. If you're angry, if you're disappointed, if you're afraid. And letting God see you and comfort you. Let me say a prayer for us. God, thank you for the faith that we see in the life of Hannah. That in the story being told, we can remember And learn more about who you are. That you see us. Even when people around us don't see our suffering. Even when the world doesn't see us. God, you see. And you meet us, leading us into deeper freedom. 
So God, that I, I ask that you would come and speak to us in a way that only you can. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Oh, my God.